as the crow flies on the Vance Crow Podcast. Liz Mealy, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I think you win the award for the greatest background. Uh, what is going on behind uh, you right Thank now? you. Um, some of us uh, like to go to flea markets everywhere they go and buy lunch boxes from their childhood. Uh, so uh, it's, first of all, uh, uh, that yellow one is Mork and Mindy. I oh, got wow. it. I got it at a flea market when I was 15 years old for $5. It's a little beat up. Some girl didn't respect Robin Williams, but um, it's like my prized possession. And for years I would sell merch out of it after shows. So like I use those lunch boxes, like they legit are storing stuff in it. Like there's a part of me that if I ever got robbed, I'm like, as long as I don't touch those lunch boxes, I mean, there's nothing of value in them, but I do store stuff in them. But yeah, there's Pee Wee's uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse. I have Ghostbusters. I have a New Kids on the Block lunchbox that I got at a flea market in Tennessee for two dollars, and I've had four different women try to buy it off me. And I was like, no, it's, it has so much value. I'm I'm really looking for a hundred dollars or more, but it does have value to me. I feel like this makes complete sense as you're describing it because I have watched your comedy, I don't know, for maybe a year and a half or two years. And uh, you have um, a, a totally different mind than anybody else I know. The way that you put things together is fascinating. And I wanted to talk with you because my sense about comedians is that they are in constant need of a relationship with their audience. They, they, you have to get those laughs in order to understand, am I connecting? Am I making a change with people? So during the pandemic, when everybody is locked away, I was wondering what goes on in the mind of a, of a comic that has to be somewhat addicted to the relationship with the crowd. Oh yeah. Pure depression. This has been a roller coaster of depression. Um, I was actually much more worried, like, really I was worried that I was going to sink into like a depressive episode because not only is it my lifestyle, I've been doing it almost every single night since I was 16 years old, but I think, how do I say this? Like there's a lot of like chemicals that happen just from getting on stage, performing, getting laughs. You know, I'm not smart enough to know what they all are, but let's say like adrenaline and endorphins and all that crap. And it is like, uh, you know, drugs. And, and I do think that doing that over and over and over again, just like a real drug and then stopping does cause some kind of withdrawal. And I'm not like, I'm not here like just crying on my bed every day, but I am uncomfortable. And I am like, I'm both like worried for the future of my career and my finances. Cause I have no other skill. Like, I did put all my eggs in this basket and I was shocked it worked the first time. And now that comedy's kind of dead, I'm like, oh, I could see how my parents were like, this isn't a good idea. Like the whole time I was like, you don't know, I'll prove you wrong. And then for like truly like six years as I was like doing financially okay and touring the world, I was like, told them. And then coronavirus happens. I was like, you know, they are older and they, they do know things and I should have listened. <laughs> like, I was like, you know, I really, really kind of told them they were wrong, but I could see how like, they didn't know about the pandemic, but I think they were like, something could happen. So I, I'm worried. I am, um, I'm sad. Like, I, I wouldn't say I've hit, like, a, I've cried um, sporadically while doing dishes. I think everybody has. Like, I don't think <laughs> if, you're, can... if you're washing your own dishes by hand, everybody's crying. Yeah, but it's like, it's usually I cry on the subway because that's when I have a long time. <laughs> um, but honestly, like there is this when I'm, when I really think about what's going on and I think truly like without putting on the filters, like, you know, those like self-help book positive, it's going to work out and everything happens for a reason. When I take that little filter off, my mind goes to a dark place and I go, you need to find another skill and you need to pivot. Like you need to adapt because this might go on for a long time and then like, I've been joking since day one of this, that I'm not essential. Like I've been, I told my mom, I remember telling my mom this years ago. I go, I know during the apocalypse, I will have no value, but I think I have some time. And now I'm like, oh, I was right. Except for the time part, because I'm not saying we're useless. I know people value comedy and blah, 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 but how my life is set up as somebody that is truly a traveling clown. Like I was traveling up until mid-March and I had to cancel uh, a European, I was in Europe and I had to cancel the rest of the gig and fly home. Um, I have not been home 
more than a week in years. I mean, on average, I'm in, on an airplane or in a car every couple of days. Um, there's weeks where I'm in a new city every day. So my life is travel. My life is going from place to place and performing for people. I make 90% of my income from live performances. Um, you know, everybody's being like, you should do zoom. shows, you should do zoom shows. And I have, and I am, but I've had to adapt to them because people don't understand that if I do a zoom show and you're like, anybody from around the world can come. Sure. But then the next time you see me, you know, all my material, like it takes anywhere from two weeks to a couple of months to polish one joke. And if you saw it now, and then I try to go to your place, let's say six months from now, maybe I'll have some new material, but I won't have an hour of new material. So we've, there's also a creativity that has to come into play when everybody has access to this thing that was somewhat sacred before and also takes a really long time to polish. Like, we expect some like a musician we like to come out with a new album every couple of years but like the whole time they're trying to make it pop and that's how stand-up is i think music they kind of hoard it and then they release it and then they tour with it we are polishing it in front of people the whole time and then we release the polished like the main big polished hour afterwards but it's um it's been a hard it's like a hard process both to do alone uh on zoom and then also with knowing that I don't know when this will be normal again, if ever. My sense on comedy, and this is my kind of running hypothesis, is that people get together when, and they have a comedian stand up in front of them that can say things that nobody else can say and, and get you to connect point A to point Z in a way that you didn't expect. And that laughter is everybody saying like, I had never seen that connection before, but ha ha ha, I see it. And I can hear that these other people see it. So as you're describing that, like there's no place for you in the apocalypse, during the apocalypse, no, maybe. But after the apocalypse, as we come out of it, people won't know what to think and they won't know what anybody else around them thinks until they get into these live environments and you start testing these ideas. To me, comedy is central to getting the economy going. Yeah, I think I, I, I'd like to agree. Um, I just, and this is in, we'll put it this way. There's days where I'm like, it's all going to work out and it's going to be fine. And then there's days kind of how I feel today, which is, I don't know what's going to be there when we do come back. Like what people have to understand, let's just look at New York city on its own. Um, you have, it's a mom and pop shop. There's not a lot of, ch there's some change. There's the improvs, you know, the laugh factory has a couple of them. Um, there's, but there's not, it's not, you know, what that, there's not a lot of Applebee's of comedy clubs. They're all kind of uh -huh. mom and pop shops. So everybody owns these individual clubs and you tour from them. They're owned by a lot of families or whatever. So we'll just stay in New York city. You have a bunch of mom and pop shop comedy clubs. There's a lot of them in New York. There's like seven or so. And some of them been around forever and they'll still be around forever. A lot of them won't. So if this goes on, cause they're talking about, let's say we reopen New York city in September, but we're not reopening comedy clubs in September. So we're talking about maybe 2021 that comedy clubs are going to open. What clubs are going to survive that when the government isn't assisting them or supporting them. So then you lose, let's say we lose half the comedy clubs. Then who are the new, who are, who's coming to these comedy clubs? Who's, who, what tourists are coming to New York City? What, like, even if everybody is financially okay in New York City that would come out to a comedy club, you have social distancing, you have half the amount of people, if not a quarter of the amount of people that would even show up. So now less shows are happening. Um, uh, comics that do do the shows are getting paid less. And then because less shows are happening, less comics are getting booked. So now only top tier comics are gonna be working. So, um, you know, I work all over the city. I'm, I'm respected and known, but I don't know if I pull in people the same way that, you know, um, Hassan Minaj is pulling in people because he has a show or Nikki Glaser because she's been on Netflix. So Nikki might be fine, but I might not be fine. And if I might be fine, the people that have only been doing it 10 years or five years, they might not be fine. So now you've stunted the way comedy is seen 
it's growing. If comics can't get on stage and they can't keep performing and there's nobody there to see it, you're kind of stunting the creative process. So then the next thing is touring, but who wants new, like it used to be like the flyers would be like New York City comedian Liz Mealy coming to Berlin. Now it's like, New York City comedian Liz Mealy's coming to Berlin. We don't, like that, that was the epicenter. Why would we want that? Like if this is, now you're kind of a little dirty, but also there's a fear. Like this is a small room. Comedy clubs are notoriously in small rooms. It's a small room with somebody that was kind of in the epicenter. If, and this is also comes with the fact that we don't know how this virus is um, working. If it's like you get it and you're immune and now you got a superpower, then I think in some ways there'll be some herd immunity in New York City and we're going to blossom. People are going to be like, well, nothing bad's going to happen in New York City. Everybody has it. It's fine. But if this is a thing that's ever growing, changing, um, there's, there's articles about people getting it and then getting it again. I don't know what's going to happen to New York City, which is truly where comedy, like it is the best place to do comedy. It's my favorite place to perform in the world. Like, and it's also where some of the best comics have come out of and where we grow and work on these little bits so that when we do tour, they're polished and people are excited about them. And it's, it's a workshop of a city as well as a, you know, a place where big comics live and, and perform. And I'm a little bit, I'm not saying years from now, there won't be positives from it, but I'm saying the next six months to maybe year and a half might be really hard for us. And as somebody, this is my only thing I've ever done as a career. It's my favorite thing. Like we're talking about like, if you wait all week to have a piece of cake, like that's how I feel about comedy and I get to do it every night. It's my favorite thing. And it's the only skill I have. And now I'm starting to be like, all right, how do I take a little bit of what I've built up and just move it in a different direction? Because not to abandon it, which I've always said I would never abandon comedy, even if I became, you know, a movie star, it's my favorite thing to do. But now it's a little bit like, I can keep doing it on a baby level, but I need to figure out how to survive the next two years. This is, uh, I mean, uh, terrifying. This is probably one of the most sobering uh, things that somebody has said. And if somebody offered you a stage right now, you know, you're kind of a junkie and you're worried about your money. If they said, hey, we're opening up this comedy club, we're breaking all the rules and we want you to headline, would you go do it? No, I say no. I think it's irresponsible. Okay. I, mean, that's, I think that's the other thing is, so think of the beaches. They, they close the beaches because if the beaches are open, there's people that are going to go to the beaches and that starts to endanger the community. So they close the beaches for the greater good of the community. And I feel similar in the way that if you open up comedy clubs, yeah, there's people that are going to come, but then you are um, a part of that system and you're, you're one of the people that's endangering people. And until we understand what this is, and until we've at least tried to put up precautions to help people, I wouldn't feel comfortable about getting on a stage right now. I, and like I said, in a closed off environment, maybe there might be an outdoor stage where everybody's six feet apart. Again, it wouldn't be that enjoyable, but I think, you know, I've joked on different shows with friends and comics about like the future of comedy where like Gallagher was before his time. Like everybody's going to have a tarp. We're all going to be little bubble boys. <laughs> you know, everybody's going to have like those, like, you know how like they have those like lobster um, uh, uh, wet naps when you, when you go to, but it'll be like Clorox wipes. And so like, you'll get your drink and you Clorox wipe it off and like, and then you drink your little drink and then I'll have like a little plastic thing. Like when you're in taxis now. So like, I don't spit on anybody. Um, but I don't know, like I was being silly like a month ago and now I'm like, I think I'm a genius. Like, I just feel like there's gonna have to be real precautions for people to feel comfortable around being with other people. And also like you, so my dad sent me this article a couple days ago and it really clarified things for me because I just didn't understand how asymptomatic people were able to spread it. Because I was always like, you cough, it travels. You sneeze, it travels. Um, Clearly, if you touch things and you touch things, it travels. But how does somebody asymptomatic if it's all about droplets? But what I didn't realize is when you talk, droplets do come out. Now, they don't propel the way a, a, um, 
a, a sneeze or a cough would. So if a cough goes this far and a sneeze goes that far, well then um, breathing or talking is just this far. So you can spread stuff by talking. You can spread stuff by uh, breathing, um, your nose or your mouth. And that's where masks are kind of helpful. But laughing, you know, that's got to be half a cough. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and I'm like, I'm like a cartoon character. My head goes back. I cackle. Like, so there's a part of me that's like, uh, anybody that would be scared, I, I wouldn't think they were wrong. And I would want to protect people as much as possible. Like, I, I don't, like, I was in London when it started to spread. And I was in Paris. And then I came to London um, early March when I was touring. And a friend of mine had just had a baby and we were going to get lunch. And I told her, I was like, hey, and this is before we truly, really understood what was going on. I was like, hey, I was just in Paris when I was in spreading in Paris. I was like, I'll come to lunch, but like, I'm not going to touch your baby. I'm not going to hug you. I'm not going to kind of touch anything. And she's like, ah, you're being silly, da, 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 da. And it broke my heart. I wanted to just like wrap my hands in this baby and like hug my friends. And they were just like, I think you're being silly. And then of course things like, you know, I get sent home a week later, but I didn't even understand it. And I knew to take precautions. Like in Paris, I stopped like shaking um, new comedians hands and I stopped like kind of embracing people. Uh, it was great. I'm not that social. I really enjoyed that. I really <laughs> um, I've been hugging people for 15 years against my will. Um, but I, even when I don't understand something, there is a part of me that's like, at least let me take precaution in, can, in case I'm wrong. And I'm a little confused why most people don't feel that way. Like, what's the harm in being wrong? You didn't hug your friends. You didn't go, go out to get food. Like, I get what's going on now where the economies are collapsing and, and people, people, there's, you know, I have friends that haven't seen another human in months and it's, they're losing their mind. And then I have friends that are in bad relationships and it's, they're, in a bad place in a small apartment. You know, I have people that are scared they're going to have to, you know, move back home or, or, or live on the streets. Like it's, you're taking the entire inter entertainment industry. And I think that's the thing that people don't really understand. You know, who Kevin Hart is, you know, who Amy Schumer is, but you know, five celebrities that do comedy there are thousands of us that are career comedians that the world doesn't know who we are, but you know, like I have 50,000 fans on Instagram. I made a career when I had 10,000 fans on Instagram. I have been touring. I've been a comedian 18 years. I've been touring on my own for probably 12 and making a living doing it for maybe about nine. Like, there are so many comedy clubs. There are so many theaters. There are so many independent rooms. You can work for uh, uh, more established comics. There's so many side hustles you can do with comedy that there are career comedians that are really gig to gig. And then you take away the gigs and there's, there's nothing there. And so I look at somebody that's a career dancer, a career violinist, a career comedian. And I think, oh, there's... Well, there's nothing there right now because if people aren't going to events nobody's nobody's looking for a ballerina to brighten their day <laughs> like you know what i mean like so what is your day like i mean what how does how does somebody like you operate if the thing that you used to do was stay up till late at night so you could go do a comedy show and then ride the subway home late at night i mean like what's your day like I mean, my, uh, I've moved everything from one side of my room to the other side. That was a big day for me. Um, I was like, I've lived here for five years. Let's see if we can pretend like we moved. Um, uh, <laughs> I discovered that I have a box addiction. Um, I have three huge, like, like big cardboard boxes with tiny boxes in it because they were good boxes and maybe I would use them. So I'm learning a lot about myself <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. Um, I would say this, I am a, I'm a, I'm a hustler. I'm a busy bee. I don't like when I was starting to realize that I was going to have to cancel my, sh my tour and go home. I was staying with my, my best friend for Maria, Maria. She uh, is an American, but she lives in London and does comedy out there. And we'd always joked um, about starting a podcast uh, based on just how dumb we are. And um, when things were starting to shut down, I was like, I think we need a podcast. And I even, when I announced that we had a podcast, like two weeks later, I was like, I regret to announce that I have a podcast. Like I'm the last <laughs> comedian. Um, I'm so sorry. Uh, you don't have to listen. Uh, but it is, um, 
it was, it was immediately like, I became very quickly aware that we're both going to be in trouble. Cause she's also a, like a career comedian, like, Oh crap. Like we need to pivot. So we started a podcast. So, um, and like, I'm, I've made my career off social media. I've been on TV a bunch, but like I said, most of my success has been like viral videos and, and um, my presence online. And I'm, and I'm fortunate because of that, because now TV isn't what it was before, um, at least comedy wise. And I immediately was like, okay, I need to find a way to make money and I need to find a way to support my friends because I'm fortunate enough that I make money with royalties. Like my standup gets played on Sirius XM and I get royalty money from that. If you listen to me on Pandora or Spotify, I get a little bit of royalty money, not a lot. Um, whenever my friends are like, I listened to your thing on Spotify. I was like, thanks for the 32 cents. Um, but you make a little bit of money over time. Same with YouTube views. You make a little bit of money and you know, sometimes it's grocery money. Sometimes it's rent money. It's really irregular, but I'm a saver and I have always prepared for a rainy day. I did not expect this storm, but I am grateful. So for me, it's about, uh, continuing to utilize the money that I'm able to make without doing anything, but then also, um, trying to propel my presence even more with different content. So I started a podcast. Um, we have about 10 episodes. We, I mean, the idea was like a week before I got sent home. Um, we started recording as soon as I got home. What's your we, podcast called? Oh, it's called two non-doctors. That's what I thought. I was like, it's, it's like, I'm not a doctor or something. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That's two right. I've listened to it. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, I mean, it's very silly. We're both morons. Um, every episode we're like, we're dumb. Don't listen to us. We don't know what we're talking about, but like my parents are veterinarians. So I have this undeserved belief that I'm right. And, um, <laughs> and I'm a Googler and she's a Googler. So it's just about the fact that we're like very curious about our bodies. And like, I diagnosed her misophonia like seven years ago. She, misophonia it kind of translates to the hatred of sound and she's a crazy person like gum chewing was like being assaulted like she was just insane oh I, I have a good friend that if you eat in his presence it's you might as well have like gone over and smacked his child or something because yeah, he, he, he hates you yeah he has misophonia um <laughs> but like she was crazy about it and I adapted because she's my friend and I love her but just one day I was looking something up and somebody said something about hatred of sound. And I was like, Oh, I wonder what that is. And I looked and I, I remember I printed out an article and I was like, I think you might have this. And I was waiting for her to be mad at me. And she's, she looked at me and she goes, Oh my God, I have this. And it like changed her life. Like she stopped feeling like she hated herself that she was like this. And she thought there was something wrong with her. And she's like, Oh, it's a disorder. It's not my fault. And like, she started to adapt. I mean, the only time I see her really freak out now is if she forgot her noise canceling headphones. Like it's a bad day. And then it's just me like being like, like almost slapping gum out of people's mouths. I was like, my friend's coming through. Like, <laughs> but, but like I diagnosed her. She's, she's, I, I've had so many health problems that I've Googled my way out of and really changed my life with like diet and all this other stuff. So it's just like basically our personalities and kind of showing what we learn to other people, but also kind of encouraging people to, if a doctor doesn't know what you're doing, you can kind of take your health into your own hands. Cause every time I've gone to a doctor and been like, I think I might have this 70% of the time they're like, Oh, this actually might be something. Let's take these tests and da, 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 da. When every doctor was like, I don't know what's wrong with you. And you're like, cool, unhelpful. I canceled my whole day to be with you. But I think that may be something that's like, you're kind of hitting on. Uh, so if anybody's ever watched your comedy, the way that I found your comedy was that you before almost everybody else was putting subtitles on your Instagram or your Facebook videos, whatever that yeah. was. And it made it like, I was like, I can pretend like I'm working and really just be reading comedy. <laughs> But like the comedian that I think of as you is you take random dots that seem random to other people and you're always connecting them in these like funny novel ways. So it makes total sense to me that you would be able to take like three symptoms and, and figure out like how they're connected in a, in a different way. I, I, um, I'm, I guess I'm kind of hung up on your idea. I don't know anything about your financial position that, that you don't have a role here because I, I, th I deeply think that, human beings don't even want to know what they think. They want to know what do other people think that I can follow behind. There's a, there's a philosopher named Rene Girard who talks about the role of the comedian being the person that allows you to go from one way of thinking to another way of thinking. And without somebody that's guiding that jump, people won't make it. 
I agree. And I think that's why people love late night. I think that's why John Oliver is so successful or, you know, the daily show. And, um, and I have a lot of political comic friends. I'm not that political myself. Um, I agree. I, I mean, I, it is, even before I started doing stand-up, it's life-changing and I still enjoy watching it. And I have friends that like will blow my mind with, with their, their comedy. I think for me, I'm not saying we don't have value because I do think we do. I just think it's going to be a huge shift in what we enjoyed about comedy and the reason we got into it and how people take in comedy and how they go about it. The, the need for comedy and the desire for comedy is huge. That has not gone away. But how we want to perceive it. So here's a good example. Almost immediately, I started getting asked to do private corporate Zoom shows. Grateful. Money, thank you. I'm very grateful. They are hard, and I don't enjoy them. Um, we're talking about me performing in my bedroom we're talking about sometimes everybody is muted or they're not muted and you have somebody vacuum cleaning and somebody yelling at their dog and then somebody being like, I didn't get that. And, you're, and you can hear them saying that, like almost whispering in your ear that they don't understand you. You're like, cool, I'm bombing in the saddest way possible right now. <laughs> uh, so it's like, it's, it's distracting. It's unenjoyable. It's a different type of connection. Also, some, most of them are muted because of all those distractions. So now, even when it goes well, it feels like bombing. And then also I'm a perfectionist. Like I'm having people watch a joke. Like I have this five minute joke about ghosts. I wrote it, I think in um, like January and it just started to get polished and finished in February. And like, that's my favorite time, by the way, I have an idea. I start working on it. It's not going well, but I see the potential. And then each week it just gets stronger and stronger to the point where I have a five minute joke about ghosts. That's like, bam, 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 bam. Like it's my favorite feeling. And I've done that joke perfectly where like every line I've written gets a laugh. And then now I'm performing it on zoom shows and it's, it's almost like every time I perform it, I lose confidence in it. Like, and they're also seeing it in its shittiest form. Like, I want people to see that joke. Like, if I was going to invite my favorite person, like just a celebrity or like somebody I look up to, to come see me do comedy, the first time they see comedy, I want them to see me at like New York Comedy Club packed on a Saturday night when I'm just in the groove. Like when I'm like everything I say just hits people and people get me. I don't want them to see me alone in their room with no influence, no alcohol at four o'clock on a Friday. As I'm not saying my jokes don't make people laugh without laughter and without the influence of other people, but it feels so much better and it hits you in a different way. That's the reason, like, I never really liked concerts. I was never, I have a lot of social anxiety. I don't like being touched. I don't fucking like, like, I don't like not having control. So weirdly enough, I don't like crowds. I don't like, I don't like concerts. But when somebody says they love the, the group think and everybody's like vibing and maybe they're all on drugs and they're all, like, you feel like a unit. I get that. Like, I went, I don't care about sports. I went and saw, I went, I was in Spain. Um, doing a tour and I went to like a real Madrid soccer game with a friend of mine who lives there. Fucking awesome. Could yeah, not care. It's like your brain just explodes. With Dude, it was so cool. Don't yeah. care about soccer. I'm not a big drinker, but like, it's just people singing and they're cheering and you're like, what a cool experience. And that's how I feel about comedy. Like a lot of times you watch somebody and you go, Oh, that joke was so funny. And she, she was great. And I really enjoyed that. And that's crazy what she said, but really it's like, it's not just me. It's all of us together being like, like you said before, like, Oh dude, they all enjoyed that. This person made everybody with her mind enjoy that thought. And a lot of my, I'm really dark. Like I just lost a bunch of fans on Instagram for telling a dead grandmother joke. And it's funny. I had people comment and they were like, they literally were like unfollow. And I was like, that's fine. I was like, you know, I don't, I don't want to hurt people with my comedy, but at the same time I heal by saying fucked up stuff. Like that's what I do. So as you were talking, like I've done 50 some odd interviews and no one has touched me in this way. Like I feel almost to the point of like, you know, crying almost because it's, and I like, I think there's something really important that you're hitting on here because I know the feeling. So I go out and give talks and 
I am, I need a couple of laughs to make sure that everybody in the audience is still a, a cohesive group. But my point is like, I'm trying to drop an idea. I want them to think about things differently and I don't do it necessarily through comedy, but I know that feeling of putting something out there and getting nothing in return. I mean, you could be standing and doing comedy. I mean, somebody could say, well, why don't you practice in front of your mirror? Well, it's because it, you can't. Like the, yeah. the entire thing is the relationship between me and other people. And if the other people are, can't communicate, and, and really a lot of it is the other people communicating with each other about what I'm saying. And so this is like, I, I, I think you're dead on uh, with, with your assessment of it. What, what has it been like to live in New York City? I mean, this is the place that the whole world is watching. Yeah, I mean, I'm... So I'm in Brooklyn and I think man like Manhattan's always functioned a little bit differently than the other boroughs like even like power outages seem to affect Manhattan more harshly than some of the boroughs um I've been through a couple of hurricanes in the last couple of years um so honestly um I don't know. I, I joke about New York City being like a rough, go fuck yourself kind of place. And I am that person as well. But I also will, I always defend New York City with, we're not going to be polite, but we are thoughtful. So there's a lot of stairs. There aren't a lot of escalators in the subway. There aren't a lot of elevators. And usually they smell like somebody took a vomit, piss, shit all at the same time. They're gross. So there, you know, there's new moms here. There's all this stuff. I have seen people that look like they murder people for a living be like, I got you, ma'am, pick up their baby, take it down the <laughs> stairs, put it down. I've seen people that look like they're not even paying attention, hold the door so somebody doesn't get slammed with the door. There are these little moments, or like I, I've always been a, I will swipe anybody in. I don't care if you look homeless. I don't care if you look like you have a million dollars. I will swipe you in. I have an unlimited card. I think everybody deserves to get where they're going and you don't know everybody's story. So everybody does their little parts to kind of support this community. I'm not going to make small talk with you. I don't want you to touch me, <laughs> but I will. I've said, don't touch me so many times that people must think I'm a freak. It's but very clear. I, you don't want to be touched. <laughs> yeah. I'm from a large Italian family that was like, I shared so little, like I, I've meant for New York city cause it's so small, but I'm also like, I've spent my whole life and I'm a tiny person, but I'm just like, I want my space. But anyway, there we are, I do think we're good people and I do think we care. We're just, we're busy and we got shit to do. So with New York City, I see people, like this is, a, this is a funny example. So the line, um, my boyfriend lives by a Trader Joe's and that's where we almost like exclusively shop. And so the line for Trader Joe's is a lot longer than the other line. So most of the time it's anywhere from a half hour to 45 minutes, but we've waited in it for two hours. So, but everybody's on the sidewalk wrapped around the entire block around six feet apart. And so my boyfriend was going to CVS. This is when like nobody could find toilet paper. And I, our biggest fight was like, you use so much toilet paper. And I was like, I use the regular amount of toilet paper. Like these are the fights <laughs> I'm having with my boyfriend. I'm just like, I don't know what to tell you. Women use toilet paper. I'm not like just out there like a cat, like fucking trying to, you know, <laughs> use a roll in one sitting. Fuck off. Like, so he's looking for toilet paper at like every CVS and Rite Aid. And I'm waiting in this long Trader Joe's line. So it was like a half hour before I saw him again. And so he comes over and he's on the phone with somebody and he's standing right behind me. And this guy comes over and he takes like a wide loop around us. He looks me in the eye and he goes, do you know him? And I go, cause we didn't even say hi to each other. He was like on the phone. So I wasn't going to interrupt him. And I was like, oh yeah, I do. It's fine. But you could tell that like, even just, it, you, I went like, I've had people were like, do you know him? Cause somebody's being creepy. Now it's like, do you know this guy that is three feet away from you? This is like, are you okay? And I was like, New York city, you're so cute. Like there are these like little moments where people are trying to be respectful. Don't get me wrong. I've already told three people to go fuck themselves, but like, Truly, there is a little, and I do think earlier New York, we're all in this together. Now it's like, we're all like, I'm freaking out and we don't know how long we're going to be in our homes kind of thing. But I do see. So there is a culture change there. You, you are seeing like it's, it's gotten less. I mean, I know that in my world, everybody was, we're all in this together. We're all in this together. And then you start seeing people being like, time to go out, time to not go out, and that, yeah. that causing conflict, yeah. Yeah, I mean, every day at seven, you hear people ch cheering and honking and cowbells and stuff like that. I see that support. I definitely see, you know, people being more helpful, being kind to um, uh, uh, any essential worker. Like, I, I think 
New York City is aware of what's going on. And I think the majority of people are doing their best to be good people and to support each other. Um, but I do also do think we are less patient and things start to weigh on us. And we are, I maybe I should just speak for myself. I'm a zero from 60 person on a good day. Like I truly, I've been in the car talking my sister off a ledge being like, you know, you just got to believe in yourself. And if you know, you put good vibes out, you'll get other, but I will fucking murder your family. If you don't learn how to merge, <laughs> like screaming at cars, like I will run over your children, just fucking merge. But if you don't, if you don't, put kindness out there, you won't get kindness back, Emily. Like that's <laughs> So it's like, I mean, I, I give it out, but I, I also try to like, I'm a, a walking contradiction. And I, I do think people are trying here. And I do, I don't think we were bad people before. I just think things have slowed down in a way that I'm sure that's like, like you were saying earlier, like, how do you feel not doing stand up? Like, I'm still going to bed at 2am. Like, I've been this person for so long. My dad, me and my dad have never been on the same schedule. My dad used to be a dairy farmer. He's a, he's a veterinarian. He has his own practice. My dad has been getting up at 4 a.m. for as long as I've known him. And I think before I've been alive and it doesn't turn off. And I was like, that's so weird. Like it's a Saturday, like sleep in. And now I haven't worked in two months and I'm like, it's 2 a.m. I'm like, go to bed, Liz, like go to bed. Like, you don't, I used to tell people like, I can't go to bed cause I have all this adrenaline that I, you know, I just performed at 1030 at night. It's like taking a shot of espresso. And now I'm like, oh no, I think I just am this person. Like whatever muscle memory, I, I, I go to bed at two, no matter what. I don't know. When you think about New York and what it was and what it is, and the fact that this is like comedy Mecca, as far as I can tell, do you have any inclination that you'll leave New York or are you, you a New Yorker for the rest of your life? I don't want to leave. I don't, I, I've always said I live here because it's this, the best place to do stand up. Like I've always said, if, if stand up was in Texas, I'd be in Texas, but um, I, I come here for my career and for what it's done for me and, and how I can grow and how central it is to kind of everything. Um, but I like it here. Like I, I do believe it's going to be harder. Um, I do believe we're going to take a, a giant step back for how we are able to grow as comics here, but I also think there will be a boom, and I also think we'll come back stronger. I just don't know when that's going to be. You know, if I was 70 and still doing stand-up, which George Carlin was 70 and still doing stand-up, um, I might shift. I might, I might use this as a sign to 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 go somewhere else or, you know, change my life a little bit, but I'm 34, you know, I, I, our airports should still work when they start doing what they do again, um, at the level they did. I, there's still value. It just might not be utilized for like a year or so. And I've always, I'm a planner and I've always looked at my life, not as the next six months or the next year, but what the next five years are going to look like. And I like what the next five years are going to look like. I think it's going to be harder. I think it's going to be, I'm going to grow in ways that I never expected. But every time I've had to take two steps back, it's been helpful. I've learned something from it. Like, I'll, I'll be honest. Like I said, I don't like technology, but I utilize it. And I've always learned just as much as I need to learn to get by. So I edit all my own videos. But if you wanted me to do something complicated, I just learned how to do a little bit of basic more editing than I had been for the last five years because I didn't need it. So I learned two skills on editing and I've just been doing it myself and I didn't need to learn anymore. And now with starting a podcast, putting on Zoom shows, I'm self-releasing my special in a couple of weeks. I've, I've probably learned five different websites, watched all these tutorials, talked to friends that have been doing it before. I have all these notebooks of like how to self-teach myself and I just don't have a good memory. So I have to write it all down and be like, oh yeah, we go there and then there and then we click that. I've had to do all this and I hated every moment of it. <laughs> every moment. I hate learning. Learning is so hard for me. Um, but I, I know it's essential right now. And I also know that when I don't need it anymore, it's going to influence how I feel about stuff, either in a comedic sense or in a business sense. And it's going to make me a powerhouse. And that's wh where I do have still some positivity in my heart. 
Instagram Live has been around forever. I never used it until a week, uh, like a month ago. Um, uh, you, I'm premiering my um, my special on YouTube. It's like this thing where it premieres it. It people can like set a reminder to know when it comes out. Then when it does premiere, there's like a chat and you can chat with your fans while it's happening. I've never done it before, but now I've read like four articles. I've heard there's a lot of value to it. We'll see what happens. And now that's something that I can teach other friends and comedians how to utilize. I can use it for other stuff and, and um, connect with my fans in a different way. I've learned so much about this online sphere that's been here for years that I wasn't utilizing because I didn't have time to learn or I didn't need to learn it. And that's going to influence how I connect with my fan base going forward. It's so interesting for me to hear you describe your uh, learning like this because I have for the last, I don't know, six months to a year, looked at what you do. And I'm like, man, if Liz can do this. I can figure this out. Like I'm going to keep trying this. So it's so interesting to me that you're describing that you like hate learning or you don't like learning. Is that like, you were talking about doing comedy when you were 16. Is that, is, was this a way to have a good experience because education and school not, not so great for you? Oh God, it's torture. I mean, I'm, I'm dyslexic. They found out I was dyslexic in the third grade and you know, my sister, my older, like, so there, we're all, my dad's dyslexic. There's five of us. We're all dyslexic to various degrees. Like my brother, Sam, who's almost like smacked out in the middle. He's the most dyslexic than me and my sister who are also in the middle a little bit more. And then the kids on the outside are like the smartest and it's not as bad. Um, and my older sister is like, I feel like you use it as a crutch. And I go, well, there's also positivities to it, but also I'm so tired of people making fun of my intellect because I don't know how to spell or my grammar is poor when I can... I'm, I'm the person everybody goes to when they need to write a business email. I'm the person that when they're trying to construct a joke and they're having issues, I go give it to me and I can figure it out. So yeah, my spelling is garbage. And every time I do write an email, I'm like, please spell check this and grammar check this because I'm a moron. But at the same time, I'm the one that structurally and eloquently and um, uh, knows how to like write good negotiation, knows how to write an interesting paragraph, knows how to write a funny joke. and and I have benefits over there. So that part of me took years to realize was value because it wasn't valued in school. And I, I read a book called The Dyslexic Advantage. I ended up becoming friends with the doctors that wrote that book and ended up doing a conference for them. And one of my- I saw you, I saw a talk you gave for them. I thought yeah. that was awesome. I thought that was like one of the most intriguing explanations of dyslexia that I'd ever heard. Yeah, and they were really sweet. They actually emailed me. So that was four years ago. And I've been getting tons, I think just people are home more, but it's been getting tons of views and I've been getting more emails about it. And the doctors, they wrote to me and they're like, hey, we just wanted to let you know that, you know, you have the highest viewed uh, video for, from our conference and from our YouTube, but also you're getting the funniest, nicest, weirdest compliments. And one was a screenshot that was like a guy that was like, I'm going to fucking marry her. She's the coolest. <laughs> like, and I was, he's like, you're getting a lot of wedding proposals. And I was like, well, that's nice. Um, but I learning is so difficult for me and I push through it. It's important. And I feel great when I learn something. I, like I said, I just learned how to do a different type of editing and I like ran out of my room and showed one of my roommates. I was like, you have to watch this. I'm so stupidly proud of myself. So it's always been difficult for me. What has changed is both with age, reading that dyslexic advantage book, and then also being a little more self-aware that when somebody teaches me in a way that it clicks faster, being like, why? And going back and now, now knowing how to teach myself how to do stuff, or if somebody's trying to teach me something, I'll be like, this is how you have to tell me to do it. And that just, you don't have those options when you're a kid. Not only did, was I not self-aware of it. So now fast forward, when I try to learn something, I have to break it down. Like even my little sister, she just lost her job. And I told her like, you got to break things down and ch like chunks, like smaller and smaller chunks. So if what I want to do is learn how, how do I put a podcast online? How do I get it to Spotify and iTunes and stuff like that? That's a big question. And you don't even realize how big of a question is. So next you have to go, okay, how do I publish my podcast? How do I get my podcast on iTunes? Is it different from getting it on Spotify? How do I update it? How do I do that? Like, and I break that question down into nine different pieces. And then I start looking either for tutorials or for people that are close to me that are willing to break it down for me even more and be slower with me. Cause like when I ask somebody to spell, I might be like spell tomorrow. And they're like, T-O-M. And I'm like, whoa, you need to talk to me. Like you don't know me. 
and that you're worried I might have some kind of brain disorder. <laughs> I want a T, I want an O, I want an M, pause, O, I don't know how the rest of that's spelled. Um, but you know, I want it, I want it broken down. So I feel like now I know how to teach myself. I now know how to teach other people how to teach me. And I know how to be more patient with myself. And I, I, I wish I could teach a class on just organization and just how to unoverwhelm the mind. And I've read like so many books on just that alone. Well, why don't you teach it? I mean, like I'm super interested in hearing this right now. Like I think the power to teach yourself how to learn outside of the school setting, like I did okay in school. I was like a B student. If I tried and got all my homework done, I could get A's. But like, it didn't make any sense to me. But if you give me a problem, and in particular, if you give me a problem and tell me I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be able to solve it, then I'm like, oh, I'm just going to rip into this thing and tear it apart. And, but the way you're describing learning is very different than the way that I think about things. Also, there's motivation. So I was an A student, but I cheated. Like I honestly, (laughs) I did. I like, I remember in uh, elementary school, my best friend would like show me her spelling test. I was never going to do well. So I would cheat off her spelling test. And then even in school, I did whatever I could. I might've not cheated on tests, but like, I just knew, like, to me, it was cheating. I knew the, this teacher likes participation. And even if I didn't know what I was talking about, I would raise my hand just to ask a question because it was considered participation. So I would cheat the system so that I would get a good enough grade because good grades got me out of the house with the rules under my family. If you didn't get A's, you were stuck at home babysitting. You were still stuck at home babysitting, but at least you could get a little bit of freedom. So I did whatever it took to get freedom. Now, that's not helpful. To cheat the system just means that I'm, I'm somebody that doesn't know how to do things. So the motivation to learn, you know, Lipson for podcasts or the motivation to understand the new tools that YouTube is offering, to understand Instagram is for me to be able to continue to do my craft and build a fan base and get to live the life that I want to live as opposed to learning math. There's no motivation for me. So motivation is important. Stand up is hard. It was hard to learn in the beginning. Now it's become like an innate part of me. But when I was 14, 15, 16 years old, just trying to write jokes, I was studying. I would watch the greats. I would write on my own. I would show my stuff to people. I would bomb on stage. It was unfulfilling and heartbreaking a lot of the times, but I was just so excited at the potential that I could get better at this. And every laugh was a little sign that I was getting better that I've had to trick myself in the same way that comedy um, was important to me and there were benefits. The same thing with learning a program that is outside my knowledge and for all intensive purposes, I don't care, but it gets me to the next level and it makes me be able to show my craft to people that I wouldn't be able to show. And I now break everything down, both from why is this important? How much of it do I have to learn? And how do I break this down so that and I think that's what makes a good teacher. All these people, like my, my roommate um, right now is reading the biography of Einstein. And he was a smart man. Clearly, everybody knows that. And he became a teacher. And he was a bad teacher. It came easy to him. Of course, and now, you know, eventually he became a good teacher. But in the beginning, it's like, yeah, idiots, you should know this stuff. Yeah, yeah. and he was not even verbal until he was three years old, they said. Like, yeah. like clearly on the spectrum, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, like, the my friend every day tells me, like, a new chapter in person. He was like, he was a dick. And then the next day, you're like, he's being less of a dick today. Like, like but the same thing is, like, I think – I think a good therapist has gone through some shit. I think a good teacher has had difficulty learning something and has had to figure out how to break it down. So that, so like for me, because learning is so hard for me, I break it down in even smaller bite sized chunks than the average person. So that when my friends that are like, Hey, how did you get your podcast on Lipson? Or how did you edit this thing for YouTube? I go, okay, this is what we're going to do. I want you to go here. Do you see this? It's unimportant. Don't look at it just focus on this. And these are the four things that you should know. And like, I can just keep chunking it down to the point that when I go to teach somebody, I might've learned all this stuff, but I know that you only need to know these three things. And that's even better to just unclutter the learning because sometimes that, and that would be a great example of how to tell a story. Like the compliments I get about my standup is my storytelling. And I've always told people, you think a good story is all the information. But really, it's the point of the story, which might not be why it happened. What's the narrative? What's the thing that you want people to care about? And then the details you put in are only to support that narrative. So 
uh, a good example is my fuck Finland joke is about trying to get into Finland and um, they did, uh, my passport was going to expire in less than three months and that's a rule. So they wouldn't let me board. So I had to get an emergency passport. Then they're telling me they don't accept emergency passports. It was one of the worst days of my life. It's an airport story, but it's a fucking I'm organized. This shit doesn't happen to me story. And that's how I framed it. It could have easily been, isn't the airport the worst place? But that's not how I framed it. I framed it as I'm OCD organized. This shit doesn't happen to me and it's not okay. And so the details I put in there isn't the airport sucks. The details I put in there are I went to the DMV and made the woman there smile. I have never (laughs) run through an airport to catch a flight on time because I show up two hours early. So that, that, that story is this almost seven minute story. If you really break down the details, I'm not talking about airports sucking. I'm talking about how I'm organized. And here's an examples for being organized. So this isn't just a regular bad day. This is a day that was never supposed to happen. And that's where the humor comes in. And I think the people that connect with it are the ones that go, oh, I get her. I get, I get the, I prepared for the meeting and it's going wrong. I mean, I I'm feeling that. it right now. I'm like, man, oh, they kept me out of Finland because my passport, I'd be so angry. I, yeah, I totally yeah. get it. And so that's, and that's kind of where I think good learning is and tr- clearly good storytelling is what do you need to learn? What is important and only support that motive as opposed to what is school? Here's the war of 1812. I don't know if that's a war, but here's a war these are the facts you need to know about it. Well, why do I need to know about it? Because you do, Liz. Well, what's going to happen if I don't learn it? You're going to get a D. But I don't care. When am I going to talk? Clearly, it doesn't matter in my life. Like, so if I'm going to learn about something, to me, if I want to learn history, it's because history repeats itself. Or it has, you know, the great, de- I really wish I paid attention about the Great Depression. It seems like it's relevant information right now. <laughs> you know, like, People are like more people died uh, during the coronavirus than Vietnam. I would love to lo- know more about Vietnam. Like, I'm not saying like clearly I should learn to learn, but like, and I like history, but like, we have to change the motivations of why people learn about stuff and what information is important to hold in our heads. And then also, how do we apply this information? I, I think like, uh, I don't know anybody in my life, I don't think this is all that novel, but I don't know anybody in my life that is super successful that did not have a pretty shitty thing happen to them when they were younger or several shitty things. Like the straight A student that was valedictorian, I think in many ways was taught the way that you get adulation is you never fail. So never step outside of these yeah. boundaries because if you do, you won't be valedictorian and then you won't get all the credit. But the problem is you don't create somebody that's like, shit, that didn't work. I'm going to try this thing. I'm going to try this other thing, which like for me, my life has been about, okay, I just got myself in a whole bunch of trouble. Now, how the hell am I going to get out of it? And that's just been over and over and over again until eventually it becomes a career where you're like, oh, this is the way that my life works. I find a problem. And then the way that I find my way out is actually how I create value. Absolutely. My, um, my roommate, my roommate's way smarter than me. And I, when I really read a lot and it takes me a long time to read, I was reading about 25 books a year. Now I'm down to like three, I'm trying to get it up to five. I'm a very slow reader. And then sometimes if I get bored with a book or I don't feel like it applies to me, I'll feel the obligation to finish it, but I won't. And so then next thing you know, six months go by and I go, I should have just dropped this book. Oh, I'm, I, if a book starts to bore me even a little bit, gone. Yeah, I've got to be better about it. And I throw them away too, because I I want, if I don't like a book, I don't want it in circulation. So I'm not one of those people who puts it up online. I throw them away. You don't want somebody to be like, oh, how was that? And you're like, never read it. Um, (laughs) But uh, so my roommate, Chris, he, I mean, he's quick and I love, like, that's my favorite thing about breakfast is he'll tell me about a book he's reading and then I'll go, is, should I read it? And he'll be like, no, I'll just tell you all about it. Or like right now there's this book called range and he's like, you have to read it. And I'm like enthralled in it. Anyway, he, he read something and he started to come up. It might've been somebody else's idea, but he basically influenced me in the sense that he's like, he's like, you're a firefighter. Everybody that does a good job at work is a firefighter. And what he meant by that is what is, what is the whole job of a firefighter? Something bad happened and we got to go put the fire out. We have to go fix it. What is it if you're like, he's a photographer. His job is to take pictures, but what also is his job? A lens broke, a model didn't show up. Uh, This location is uh, off limits, so we can't do it. So you have to figure out, okay, this thing happened. 
How do we continue to do what we had allotted to do? There's 10 people here. This person could only shoot this day. It has to get done. How do we get this done? You're, you're putting out fires everywhere so that at the end of the day, everything went wrong and the client is still happy. And that's what it's like to be a comedian on stage. Everything went wrong. Somebody dropped a glass, some guy's shouting, this joke is bombing. The person before you did a joke similar to you and now you have to start different. You're, you're, but you're if you succeed, it's like cocaine. It's just coursing through your veins. And that's why people like heckler videos is because that wasn't planned and it went so well. And what people also don't know is we're putting out fires you don't even know about. I've had stomach aches where I'm like, I might vomit on stage right now. <laughs> and my inner dialogue is don't throw up, don't throw up, don't throw up. And people are like, what a great show. And I was like, oh, I threw up as soon as I got off stage. Like, as, like the whole time I wasn't present. I was very scared. I was like, this could come out of every orifice. That's not how I want to be remembered. Everybody has an iPhone. I'm going to be a national sensation that I don't want to be. How do I finish my jokes and vomit somewhere not on stage? Like, it's your both on stage, off stage, you're in a constant firefighter mode. And my dad, I learned a lot from my dad. My dad is a firefighter in that sense. He is always putting out fires in his life because he had five kids and wasn't making enough money to support them to he had a business and there's always problems managing people, managing clients, animals. Animals never do what you want them to is your, do. Is your dad a large animal vet? He's a small animal. Small animal, but yeah, I know your mom kills cats, but. Yes, yeah, of course, professionally. Um, so yeah, so my mom, both, it used to be two separate practices and then they merged them. But um, my dad did uh, cats and dogs and some other weird animals. And my mom exclusively um, was a cat specialist. So we're running a little short on time because you got to run, but I've got one question that I've been asking people. Um, what do you think the world is going to look like in two weeks? Every day is different. I think. Um, I, I think it's going to be a little bleaker, honestly, because um, most states are opening up and I think they're going to eat their words pretty quickly. Um, the states that are listening um, will kind of just be the same, maybe a little cocky, a little told you so. Um, and then we're looking at the rest of the world to see what happens. I think everybody is looking at New Zealand and Korea to see that they're starting to open up after kind of handling it the best with all the testing and the tracing. Um, and we're not that they're giving us those options, but I think every day we're learning something new and every day I think we're eating our words, but I think anybody that's not being cautious right now is, is putting people's lives at risk and, and, and whether knowingly or not knowingly, I, I don't think we're going to know. I don't think our lives are going to be much different in two weeks other than a little scarier. I'm more curious about what we're going to look like in September or what we're going to look like in January. I think those two, I think those two time periods are going to be a shadow of what we're going through right now. Liz, you have a show coming up on Friday where people can tune in online. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's Saturday. Saturday, um, Saturday. It's okay. all right. No day, days don't matter. That's not your fault. Um, we, I don't even know what today is. Uh, yeah. So I started a, it's been every two weeks. I might try to make it weekly. We'll find out. It's all an experiment, but it's called Zoom Diner. It's a little bit of a made up show that like that I kind of made up. It's a behind the scenes show that I would have never created if regular stand up comedy is happening. But me and my friends in between shows or after shows uh, would go to a diner and just kind of catch up or whatever. But I would always be like, hey, I have this joke. This line isn't working. Can you give me ideas? Or I'd be like, I have this new joke. I think it might be confusing. Can I run it by you? And I don't do it with everybody. I do it with a handful of friends, people that know my comedic voice, people that I respect their ideas. And I told my girlfriends, because none of us were getting unemployment. We had no money coming in. I was like, let's try to put something together. And um, it was with my two best friends that I always do that with, um, and I called it Zoom Diner. And so what it is is we all do 10 minutes, and we give each other – we we almost show people how we are for each other. So I would tell a joke, and my friend Adrian Appalucci would be like, oh, my God, you told me this story years ago. Maybe you could put that in there. Or uh, Carmen would be like, oh, that's really funny, but um, 
What about if you call it back to that joke that you have over here? Or, and they start to see how the mechanics of it work a little bit. And we did that kind of in a round circle with all three of us. So I decided to branch it out. And now on Saturday, I'm doing it with uh, Judah Friedlander. He's been on Netflix and 30 Rock. And then Maria Shahada, who is my podcast um, buddy. And she's been on like, um, uh, she's in London. So it's all like B- BBC and and crap like that um I like and if that people home. wanted to, to get tickets i'm in i'll be there on saturday no, no doubt. Uh, yeah it's on my website lizmealy.com it's pay what you can so you can you can pay a dollar you can pay forty dollars whatever it takes to keep you in in the comedy game yeah stay in, stay in the game no i appreciate it and then uh biggest news is my special i filmed it in new york uh in november but it's going to be free and on youtube starting may 30th 8 p.m eastern standard time well, Liz, I am so grateful that you were willing to come on here uh, and and just chat. This has been, for me, it's like the closest person to what my life has been like is yours of all the people I've interviewed. So this has been fascinating. Um, I think that there is a place for you uh, doing comedy among farmers all over the United States. So <laughs> Good to know. Thank I, you. I, I think, uh, I think your comedy my, will resonate. <laughs> yeah. So we'll, we'll see about that. I, 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 I hope farmers take you up on it. There are a lot of, a lot of places where your comedy would would land thank you so much for doing this yeah thanks for having me i appreciate it Ah!